Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Welcome to part one of our three-part Australian Investors Podcast mini-series on ethical investing in Australia, sponsored by Australian Ethical, a leader in ethical managed funds and superannuation. I believe that ethical investing is not a transient trend or thematic. It should be talked about in the same vein as your risk tolerance or return expectations. ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social and Governance, is rapidly emerging as one of the most important considerations for any investor. The amount of money invested in ESG-aware strategies is now over $10 trillion globally and rising rapidly. As I discovered when I was creating the RASC Ethical Investing course in 2021, according to a paper by Wines and Nicholas 2017, Choosing a high-impact, sustainable investment option over a standard index fund would result in a reduction of your annual carbon emissions totaling 7 tonnes. To put that in perspective, it's the equivalent of more than 5 families switching to a hybrid car or 7 people becoming vegan. Even with a more conservative ESG investing strategy, it can result in a CO2 reduction of 2 tonnes. 
equivalent to a return flight from New York. Here at RASC's Australian Investors Podcast, we're all about finding businesses that can scale fast with lower incremental costs. Bigger returns, less effort. So let me break this down. Switching to a proper sustainable investing option is by far the highest impact per unit of your effort you will find anywhere. As I hope we're both going to discover, ethical, ESG, responsible, or sustainable investing, however you want to frame it, does not mean sacrificing returns. There are no hard and fast rules, so don't be perturbed by people who say something like, that's an unethical investment. Here's how I draw a distinction between ethical and sustainable investing. In my opinion, ethical investing is about your personal values, while sustainable investing can be objectively measured by carbon footprints, social impact measures, incentives, and things like corporate governance ratings. In part one of this mini-series, Ethical Investing in Australia, you're going to hear from Australian Ethicals Dr. Stuart Palmer. Stuart walks us through the evolution of ethical investing, the Australian Ethical Charter, the core tenets of Australian Ethicals investing process, and how the ethical filter creates a universe of investable companies. Finally, I asked for Stuart's response to owning Westpac Banking Corp and Facebook slash MetaSystems Then I run five ASX companies past him and his ethical filter. These companies are Guzman Y. Gomez, the private company involved in Mexican fast food, National Storage REIT, a self-storage REIT which offers a stable dividend, Tyro Payments, the card terminals payments business, ARB, the 4x4 accessories company, and Aussie Broadband, a low-cost MBN provider with good customer service. In part two and part three of this series, I'm joined by Australian Ethical's Head of Australian Equities, Mike Murray, who walks us through the investing pillar of Australian Ethical's investment process, and then offers us three ethical investing ideas from the Australian Shares High Conviction ETF, which trades in the CBOE under the ticker symbol AEAE. I hope you enjoy part one, my conversation with Dr. Stuart Palmer of Australian Ethical. Stuart, thank you for taking some time to join me on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you, Alan. It's um, always an interesting chat when we get to talk investing, but it's also, I'd say, more interesting when we get to talk about the ethics of investing as well, because this is an area of investing, generally speaking, where people are growing aware of, if they're not already aware of, and they're seriously considering how their ethics play out in their portfolio. One of the great, um, I guess, investing wisdoms that I heard from the Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner, was make your portfolio represent the best version of the future. And he basically talks about this idea of what does your portfolio say about you and your values as an investor? And I think that's a great way to frame not just the way we think about ethics in investing, but just investing generally speaking. Today, we're going to talk about um, how you and the team at Australian Ethical basically construct a universe of companies that may be more ethical or improving in some way um, and focus on the Australian Ethical Charter and what that means and how that plays out in practice. We'll follow on with two episodes and two conversations with, with Mike um, about the portfolio construction and using some examples from the ASX. But to kick things off and to introduce you to the Australian Investors Podcast audience, can you tell us, Stuart, how did you get to be in the position that you are at Australian Ethical? Well, yeah, it, was a, it wasn't necessarily a straightforward journey. For 15 more years, you know, I had very mainstream roles in, in law and, and finance, legal background, moving across mm. into structured finance. I guess I, I had slightly less mainstream interests around 
philosophy and, and carried on some sort of um, part-time academic studying in that area over the, over the years. Uh, but, and, and I guess it was that academic interest that led me to uh, probably a little bit over 10 years ago to the Ethics Centre, was, was the St James Ethics Centre at that time and was working there with companies, not-for-profits, uh, with government around sort of ethical controversies, crises, and, and generally just, you know, how they could uh, support cultures, practices for, for better decision-making, good decision-making. And, uh, yeah, it was there I came across Australian Ethical and, and that was the step further step I took in, in 2014. So, yeah, looking back, a fair bit of luck involved. And, and interesting, despite my interest, you know, around philosophical ethics or, you know, or involvement and interest in, in finance, I really hadn't come across either the Ethics Centre or Australian Ethical until shortly uh, before I ended up joining joining them. So I, I think that maybe is an indication of sort of going back a decade, the lower level of awareness mm. uh, of ethical investing and and something that's that's come on uh, in leaps and bounds since then. So what what drove you to join Australian Ethical then? So uh, you know it's a unique sort of organisation in, in many ways. It certainly was at that time. And, yeah, I mean, becoming less unique, which I think is great, is, is partly a product of its, its success in that, yeah, it, it at its foundation, it has an ethical charter uh, which sets its purpose, how it's going to invest to pursue positive change for people, animals and the environment and avoid unnecessary harm. And there was this crazy role there where um, you stepped in and you were able to... Um, sort of, well, you inherited, I inherited, you know, a whole wealth of information and, and practices sitting under that charter, which I know we're going to talk about. Uh, but to then, you know, take that take that forward and 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 help the organisation navigate, yeah, how do we think about these different parts of the economy and society, you know, as as the world changes? So, uh, listen, I, it, um, uh, yeah, when, when I became aware of what they were they were doing and there was the opportunity, um, I chased it uh, chased mm. it very vigorously. Mm. And and by all accounts, it seems to be a very good move for you professionally and for the business because things have really taken off at Australian Ethical because the company is publicly listed. A lot of investors are familiar with not only the kind of the managed funds and the superannuation side of Australian Ethical, but also as a company and what it stands for, uh, the foundation and those types of things. Can you tell us, you mentioned there briefly in your discussion, how the, I guess the awareness of environmental, social and governance issues has really, you know, dawned on the investment community principally in the last 10 years. But, you know, if we go back a few decades to the late eighties, uh, when Australian ethical forged the charter, um, can you describe some of the, I guess, some of the important shifts that have happened as an industry, as we talk about ethical investing, sustainable investing, et cetera, or even responsible investing, however you want to frame this. Can you kind of fill us in on the important milestones over recent decades that have led us to where we are today? Sure. And as you say, uh, you know, late 80s, that was when Australian Ethical was founded and, and the Ethical Charter was 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 written. And I, mm. I guess, listen, there's been a lot of positive change since then, but I, I should say one thing that probably hasn't changed is, is some of the big challenges that were identified then by the company, like climate change, you know, we've mm. been slow to act on. So, um, it's been it's been a slow process. We we were a niche organisation at that time, at that time, and, and maybe still in many people's minds, ethical investing was was viewed uh, often as just a narrow set of exclusions around sin stocks. You know, we won't invest in gambling, pornography, uh, alcohol. Uh, so Australian ethical sort of took a much broader approach. We care about people, animals, and the environment. We're going to invest in a positive and as well as 
avoid negatives. So um, around that around that time, I don't think that there were many people doing uh, doing what we we were doing. But um, over the next decade, um, yeah, there were other players, and and through the good works of, of many, but including Australian Ethical, the Responsible Investment Association was established in Australia in, in 2000, originally called Ethical Investing Australia, and, and Australian Ethical was a founding member there. Globally, we saw the UN Principles for Responsible Investment established in 2006. Um, and yeah, really interesting to look back at the history there. There were a couple of Australians who were, were key drivers in, in setting in setting that, that up, and, and indeed our current chair is, was on the steering committee, which helped develop those, those principles. Um, I think, yeah, more recently, uh, I, th I think a significant factor in the growth of the sector has been civil society, sort of activist organisations, you know, uh, have obviously been around forever, mm. uh, looking to change the world for the better, hold business, hold governments to account. But I think, yeah, a growing focus on how they can apply a little bit of pressure to our sector, the investment sector, the finance sector. So locally, we've had market forces, the Australian Centre for mm. Corporate Responsibility, who I think, yeah, their uh, their presence has, has been a significant factor in, in the growth of of the sector and some of those stats, I don't, I don't know if they're worth mentioning, but I think For now, sure. um, you know, in, in Australia specifically, if we look back since 2014, there's been about 35% per annum compound growth in the size of ethical or responsible investing. Uh, globally, I think the total market share, and listen, these numbers change a bit depending on how you're going to define responsible investing, sustainable investing, ESG investing, and, and, and so on. Uh, but of the 100 trillion US odd of assets under management globally, um, there's anything from people, you know, depending on how they classify it, from 35% to 60% of that managed under some form of sustainable or responsible investment wow. strategy. That's a lot bigger than I thought, to be honest. I, mm. I, I've seen some reports from Bloomberg in the tens of trillions. So that's um, yeah, that's a huge number. Yeah. So the global, uh, what are they called? The Global Sustainable Investment Alliance is sort of a, a coalition of responsible investment organisations around the world. They um, come out every few years with a report. So the report they, they brought out last year, yeah, had that 35% number. So that was uh, of the 100 trillion, which was... Um, was uh, yeah their definition of their understanding yep. of sustainable investing. Yeah, fantastic. I thought maybe because you mentioned you brought up a few terms there, Stuart, that I might just get you to to just to clear up for us. It's mm. kind of like a definition uh, moment. I'll do uh, my best. The, you mentioned that investing for positive change, not just the negative. And mm. I think it's important maybe just to define as we go through the conversation. What do you? How do you define something like negative screening versus positive screening? And kind of like what's the what's the importance of those two? I guess tools or techniques. Yeah, and I mean, screening carries some of those connotations about let's exclude some sin stocks and, and mm. so on. But I mean, in a sense, that's what investors do, whether they're responsible investors or not. You're screening according to some criteria. I guess unless you're a passive investor investing right across the market, you're screening in mm. some way. Uh, so, uh, but but yeah, negative screening, I guess, uh, as a term, is focused on well, what are those harmful products, activities. Uh, which we'd be better off without, you know, tobacco, um, mm. uh, for, for example. Uh, positive screening is saying, well, okay, we can limit the harm we cause, but, yeah, where can we put capital into activities, businesses, uh, which, you know, if they grow, will promote the well-being of people, animals and the environment. So, you know, how do we target capital to more renewables, energy efficiency, 
healthcare, which is reaching you know, vulnerable populations who maybe aren't getting adequate healthcare. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I think that I think that frames it really well for what we're about to talk next. Uh, talk to next, which is just basically what does the day look like for you as you know head of ethics research at Australian Ethical. I guess people that we've had on the podcast in the past had dozens and dozens of portfolio managers, chief investment officers, et cetera. I think you're the first head of ethics that I've had on the show. And I guess that's a shame, but it's also maybe a sign of things to come. What does a typical day look like for you? And then maybe we, beyond that, we'll dive into the investment process, the universe and how we get down to, you know, a list of, of investable securities. Yeah. So so stepping back just to, to sketch, I guess, our overarching investment process because we're, you know, we're an investment management mm. firm. Um, our approach is, is to recognise that, you know, there are two important things that we need to take care of, you know, independently important pillars in our process. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that assessment uh, is, a, is an investment suitable to enter our sustainable, our ethical, our responsible investment universe? Do we think it's part of a better future for people, animals, and the environment? So that's the ethical pillar. And then the other pillar is, is the more mainstream traditional one, you, you, you know, existing in, in any investment house, which is applying, implementing an investment strategy within that, that, that universe. So, yeah, mm-hmm. looking at risk return, pursuing a yeah optimal optimal balance of, of of those of those things so my world is is the ethics research side of things that that first pillar understanding uh what the impacts of different industry sectors product services are and then individual companies to try and make that assessment uh yeah are we going to allow you know this investment opportunity into the into the universe and got a team of, of four people on the ethics research team um, sort of applying, yeah, our criteria, our our charter, ethical charter, and the frameworks and policies that that, that sit under it. Uh, but then drawing on, um, you know, enormous amount of external information, as as you'd expect any investment process to draw on, uh, you know, external expert analysis, scientific research. I've already mentioned NGOs, civil society. They're doing some great research around human rights impacts. Uh, and and climate climate impacts which which we draw on in our in our process so um, mm. it's a dream job for someone who's interested in you know, the world's challenges and, and opportunities to um, to yeah you know, play play a, a bit of a role in in creating that that better future and mm. and just th- thinking deeply about some of those challenges recognizing the complexity uh, their complexity and and therefore the complexity of some of the solutions that we need to be working on. We're going to talk more about, um, we're going to use some examples towards the end of this conversation, just so that it can frame it really nicely for people and put a, put a ribbon on it. Uh, so my interpretation of, of what you've just said there, Stuart, is basically there are two independent pillars. Obviously, there's the ethical charter, which um, is your specialty. And then there's the investment process. Like It's all part of the investment process generally, because that's what the company does. But um, there are kind of two pillars, the kind of the investing, what happens in the t- like typical analyst day-to-day role, and then there's your, you and your team on the other side. Um, to help us understand how Australian Ethical and how you and the team go about building, I guess, or stepping through that process, can you uh, walk us through the ethical charter? Um, you don't necessarily have to do it line by line, but however you see fit. In terms of framing the conversation for what you look for and why or what you're trying to get out of the process and why, I think that will be really, really helpful for us. 
Yeah, and it's not I'd, anyone who's interested. I'd recommend jumping on our website and having mm. a look at the charter because uh, people do respond to it in different ways. It's it's twenty three principles, so there's twelve areas that we're going to look to invest to to advance, to promote, to support, and then eleven sort of areas of potential harm we we're going to look to avoid right. in our investing. Uh, our, and and some examples. I mean, it, it's it's what we call principles based. It's not saying. You know, if you can't invest in this sector, you must invest in that sector. It's sort of saying things like, okay, look for opportunities to invest to support general things like human and animal happiness and well-being and dignity. Uh, uh, invest, look for opportunities yeah, around sustainable buildings, sustainable land use, sus sustainable food production. Avoid uh, uh, unnecessary waste, uh, uh, exploitation of. Um, finite resources in an unnecessary way, practices which uh, impact, uh, infringe human rights, misleading advertising, promotion of products and services, unwanted products and services. Mm -hmm. So it's it's principles-based broadly. Um, the, the people who put it together, I think we're just thinking quite carefully about, okay, better future for people, animals and the environment. What are some of the guiding principles that are going to help us sort of navigate that? But sitting under that, then we need to apply those principles to where are we going to target our capital, for example, in the energy sector? You know, we, we, we want to support renewables. We want to see that fossil fuel, those fossil fuel sources of energy shrink as rapidly as they can as the renewables, uh, as the renewable production grows. In the food sector, thinking about, uh, you know, health impacts, Again, climate impacts, the emissions impacts of different mm. sources of protein, the animal welfare impacts, hugely important in the agricultural sector. So, so we then develop specific criteria for the food sector, for the property sector, for uh, the retailing sector to basically, yeah, what, obviously important in any investment process to have clear criteria, a consistent, rigorous process that you can, you can replicate. Uh, and it, that's the work that those frameworks do. Whilst that charter, those principles haven't changed, those, those frameworks do over time as, as the world changes, scientific understanding uh, of ourselves and, and, and the challenges we face develops, technologies change. I imagine having that kind of principles-based focus is actually really important because it is what is basically allowed that charter to survive decades, right? Because if it was so specific to that time, the late 80s, the concerns of that time might have been a bit political. And through you know the goodness of time, we've had things change and the issues change and the, the context changes too. So being principles focused, um, it might, might cause a few kind of like um, hairs on some people's backs when they think, why is this in the portfolio? Why is that in the, not in the portfolio? But we'll get to the kind of like how you deal with kind of like the more polarizing debates in just a moment. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, I find when I look at, say, like some of the passive ESG, we'll go air quotes, ESG or ethical investing ETFs here in Australia in particular, and there's kind of more like um, like what people would associate as an index fund, but with like an, a passive, uh, with an eth ethical overlay. I find that they can be quite blunt in the sense that it's a very binary outcome for some companies. Like you said, there's they're basically on the negative screens. So I'm I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, can those types of, you know, vehicles, those ethical ETFs, um, not all of them, by the way, but you know, some of those ethical ETFs, can they um, provide decent exposure for investors who are looking for a low-cost way to play this um, idea of investing uh, for a better future? Yeah, it's not. I think they they do face some challenges. Some of those challenges are shared with with active ethical strategies like like our own. Uh, 
but but I but I think um, and, and unfortunately it's not always easy for investors to mm. uh, to choose. Yeah, um, I mean so so I mean it, what what I, I I guess it becomes a cliche, but you know it, it it's for a reason. You know transparency is so important really in investing generally, but but specifically. Uh, or particularly around ethical and sustainable investing. So we think sure. it's really important that strategies uh, are clear about, you know, how they're making decisions about what's screened in and, and out, what their criteria are. So, yeah, we go spend a lot of energy both just in our public reporting but also on our website. What's our position on how do we think about the energy sector, the food sector, what tends to be in, what tends to be out? Uh, the property sector. What do we what do we think about companies um, that may be involved in the infringement of human rights, and how do we address that hugely complex sort of challenge? Um, and I, I think where some of the the simpler narrow ETFs fall down is that yeah they they have a couple of narrow exclusions, uh, but yeah they've got a long way to go. It's not really meeting the needs of most people when they're thinking about responsible and um, and sustainable investing uh, to to just you know exclude. Cluster munitions and tobacco, for example, you know, mm. uh, uh, sort of the limited exclusions of some ETFs. I think the challenge they also face, and we face it, it, it too, is um, that data challenge. But, but in a passive yeah. fund, yeah. So on the financial side, you're benchmarking yourself to a, a market index, ASX 200, let's say, straightforward for a, a, an investor. Uh, a customer to sort of look at the performance of the strategy against the index, mm. and, you know, make that make that informed choice. Um, yeah, the, the concept of an ethical index or a sustainable index is a little stranger because there's not that straightforward sort of score or, or benchmark for ethical ethical business, ethical ethical investment. So, you know, it, it's not very meaningful for a, for a, a, a customer. Um, to be told, for example, well, you know, all the yeah. companies we invested have a sustainability score of at least seven. I mean, what what does that what does that mean? And you know, sustainability is hugely sort of multidimensional. It's not like returns. You know, it's mm. it's it's a percentage. Like it's a single figure or something. That's like right. That, yeah. So so listen, I I think what 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 we've um, we've struggled with is doing this in a robust. We think doing it right. To deliver what customers need is complicated, and that that can make it complicated to explain and communicate sometimes. But uh, we we sort of wear that, and we just try and put information in as clear a fashion as we can on our website. Uh, we respond; we're really proactive in responding to customer inquiries. We get we we have a lot of interaction with our customers. You know, would you invest in this? Why are you in that? And and so on. I think that's really important of what responsible investment needs to deliver uh, to to its customers is our you know, that transparency. Yeah, I think there are two things in there that I might just draw on, Stuart. The first is that when I, uh, the younger generation loves um, transparency. And so when I go onto social media, um, the number of followers that Australian Ethical has through its social media channels is multiples of anything else remotely the size in terms of, you know, even, I don't kind of think of peers that would have any type of engagement with the community like Australian ethical has. And so I think that kind of emphasizes that point that the transparency is important. The communication is so important when it comes to ethics and values and those types of things. Um, the other thing is when people look at um, particularly, I'm going to draw out the passive um, ethical ETFs here in Australia, because 
um, what we find is that it's like close enough is good enough. And that still doesn't sit well with a lot of people. But if there was some sort of communication around, here's why this is in the portfolio and this isn't, I think people would be a lot more drawn to those, those types of vehicles, but they're not because they just don't have that ability to say, here's why we've come up with this because they don't have their own ethical charter. They don't formulate principles like that, like you do. So I think that's where um, Australian ethical brand and teams, it's kind of head and shoulders above it. Most other, or if not everyone else in the market right now. Um, there, there is one thing that I'm going to draw out from um, one of the letters that were on the website, which, and I might just read it verbatim if that's okay. It says, and I quote, the carbon intensity of our portfolio continues to decline whilst our investment in renewable power generation powers on. Since 2000, we have donated more than $6 million to our foundation, driving positive outcomes for the planet, people, and animals. Um, I'm interested, one, in how you and the team monitor existing positions within the portfolios to determine, okay, this is no longer an ethical investment in our eyes or, or however you define that. And you know, if you have any examples of companies that then have been subsequently removed from the portfolios on that account, I'd love to know. And if you could just maybe walk us through one of those, if you have them available. No, I, I, that'd be that'd be good because yeah, I'm conscious sometimes uh, this doesn't come to life until we talk about particular companies and 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 people, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, can can engage a little bit more in yeah, the reality sure. of it. Uh, can I can I just divert just for for a second because I'm conscious and it's 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 at the core of what we do but we have focused on you know where we're targeting capital what we will what we won't in, invest in you know responsible investment you know has a has a couple of other pillars which which is a crucial part of my day to day should have mentioned it earlier okay. uh, and it goes hand in hand with it it's um it's sort of that investor engagement advocacy so using yep. your influence as an investor um uh you know, we the the companies that we end up investing in. So we're 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 limiting our universe typically to fifty percent or less of of most mainstream indices. So it's not a light light mm. touch right. sort of positive negative screening approach. But that by no means leaves us with perfect companies. So yeah, having that investor voice, taking that long term view, and having constructive conversations with companies is a hugely important part that responsible investors need to play. That's it's we devote a lot of energy to that what we call ethical ethical stewardship mm-hmm. of the companies we do, in, do invest in. Um, and uh, it gives us a deeper understanding of the companies as, as well from an investment investment point of view. Uh, and, and I guess alongside that, you've mentioned the foundation. So as an organisation, mm-hmm. we have a foundation where we, we're um, uh, granting 10% of our profits each year to the not-for-profit, the civil, civil society is, is where, where that's targeted. So, you know, we recognise the crucial role that has that has to play alongside private markets, alongside government. Government is an area where we, we use our voice to try and encourage better public policy because that's going to make markets and civil society work so much more efficiently and effectively in tackling climate change and, 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 and so on. Um, so, so all that's part of what we do, and so is the measurement piece. You mentioned the lower carbon intensity that we have, the higher renewable uh, energy that we had. I mean, yeah, customers, yes, we need to explain our position, but they also want to know, okay, here's my portfolio. How does it look compared to a mainstream benchmark? Yeah. You know, is it less carbon intensive? Well, yes, it is, and here's by how much, 75% looking at our share investments across our strategies and, and, and so on. So, yeah, that's just to say, um, yeah, there's a lot... Um, that Australian Ethical uh, does as part of that, you know, what it what it takes to be key pillars of responsible investment. Um, 
the the the, the question though, um, companies changing, um, also just even before change, the, the sorts of companies, listed companies, we're investing in a big complex organisation. So we mm. things in them that we'd like, things in them that we don't like. Um, and so we we need the frameworks do the work of dealing with that. We invest in a company called Contact Energy. 80% of its uh, revenue comes from renewables, hydro and, and geothermal. It's still using around 20% of gas as backup when there's not enough rain to, to fill, fill the dams. Uh, but the sort of company that we... You know, we want to be investing in because it's continuing to invest in geothermal, continuing to invest to reduce that reliance on gas so we do get to that that 100% renewable um, objective. So, so, yeah, we're not, things aren't black and white. There's that complexity. And then, of course, companies, companies change. Uh, they also, they make mistakes. So uh, when, when there is a significant business change, an acquisition, a divestment, change of strategic direction, or when there's a significant controversy, yeah, if we if we look at that and say, oh, that might change our ethical assessment, then we then that's that's something yeah we get onto and we revisit its place in our ethical universe. Uh, independently of that, um, you know, periodically, you know, we're coming back um, every two years at least to do a right. you know, a complete right. review of the company and say where where is it at? Are we are we still satisfied that it's aligned with our ethical charter? And in terms of examples, um, I mean, the, I guess the finance sector. Uh, you know, the Royal Commission, I guess, is still fresh in in our minds uh, for many of us anyway. Certainly mm. someone who, who screens companies in the finance sector like mine, it's, <laughs> it's hard to forget. Uh, but, yeah, we got out of AMP, we got out of IOOF, you know, in the context of the, the Royal Commission and following the Royal Commission, and, and we still uh, look at the findings of that Royal Commission as really helpful guidance in determining where we will and won't invest in that sector and we're a selective investor in, in, in the banking sector um we have companies make mistakes and they can even be hugely positive companies i mean internationally we invest in siemens gamesa renewable energy which is a big wind turbine company so we like wind energy uh but obviously it needs to uh, we're looking at what a company does but also how it does it so Mm. is it for example managing its environmental impacts and its development of wind farms is it uh, safeguarding human rights in the areas that it operates in. So there was a company who was actually growing its operations in occupied territories in, in North Africa, in the Western Sahara, oh, right. Sahara, and actually, yeah, contracting with the Moroccan government, which was was occupying uh, that area and, and, and not um, honouring a transition to free and fair elections. So we engaged with that company, and that's that's generally if we see an opportunity where we might be able to influence a change in approach, that will be our first response to what we see as a misstep by a company. Let's try and understand what's going on and, and you know, are, are there plans to rectify rectify that. But yeah, if we can't get comfort, um, if there's not if there's not change or if there's not sufficient change, then we'll we'll jump out. And then there are the other there are the examples the other way where, you know, we have concerns about a company like Boral, the building sector, building mm. materials sector, tough area for us to invest in high emissions, but are really obviously a crucial sector mm. for, um, you know, I mentioned sustainable buildings is a is a particularly particular area called out under our, our charter. You know, there aren't those obvious low emissions alternatives at the moment for concrete, for, for steel. So, yeah, we engaged with Boral before we actually got to the point of investment around the work they were doing around low carbon concretes and transitioning. And we we did ultimately invest in, with, in, invest in them. We continue to engage with them as part of the Climate Action 100 Plus, which is a, a big global collaborative climate engagement uh, 
involving lots of responsible investment houses and we're one of the lead investors with, with Boral. And, and we've seen mm. that company yeah, continue to set higher targets to align its business strategy with the, with the Paris Climate Agreement. So you mentioned uh, earlier that you meet with the companies or you, you review the companies at least once every two years. Do you, do you, when you do these reviews or when you um, seek out companies that could be added to the universe, do you go and in, uh, like speak with management teams? Do you go do site visits, those types of things? Um, and I guess this is following with, from that was, do you participate in the, the discussions that the, we'll call it the analyst team have when they're talking about, you know, company specific things when they're doing their valuations and those types of things. Do you participate in those as well? Or is it you do kind of, this is your wheelhouse is over here and theirs is over there? Yeah, so um, it's a great question and it, and it does depend a little on the type of company and the and the issue. Uh, I mean, we're in the lucky position, I think over the past decade, a lot of the information that is relevant to our ethical assessment is now much more readily available in public reporting than it used to be. Mm. You know, climate reporting uh, uh, is, you know, is now become pretty pretty standard. So when we're we're looking at that issue and how is the company aligning aligning its direction with a transition to net zero, there's a lot of public information which will often get us where we need to go in terms of completing our ethical assessment on that issue, for example. There's now modern slavery, compulsory modern slavery reporting for larger companies in, a, in Australia. So mm. we get more public information about how they're managing human rights impacts. Uh, but there will be areas where we need more detail, where it's less standard for companies to report. Animal welfare is a big issue, a huge issue for us. Mm. Often there's not a lot of public reporting of that by healthcare companies, for example, who may be using animals in their healthcare research research. So there are areas where we are going backwards and forwards with the companies. And often we will be doing that in conjunction with the investment team who has the relationship uh, yep. with, with, with management, with the, the head of clinical research or, or whatever, um, head of research uh, at, at these biotechs, for example. Um, uh, but yeah, there's an element of divide and conquer. I mean, we, you know, we'll engage sort of direct lines of sort of engagement and debate on, on issues that are really crucial to our ethical assessment. Um, the investment team will be, be, um, um, be, you know, in parallel, you know, or with different companies on different areas of focus working on sort of uh, more, you know, business, short near term business issues mm. um, uh, and, and, and so on. So it, it really does depend what's the most efficient way that we can, we can allocate our resources. I think that's, I think it, I can only imagine, Stuart, what a, when a CEO um, is on the other end of an email that says, I would like to, our analyst would like to speak to you. And that, that email comes from Australian ethical versus say another fund manager, uh, because they're probably prepping themselves for a different conversation um, when they receive that email. If I may um, ask a question, you may not have it off the top of your head, but what are, you know, some examples of questions that you would ask a management team like is there a, a checklist or a series of questions or what what's your favorite question that you ask when it comes to like an ethical thing or even if there's an example that comes to mind of where you've asked a ceo or some type of manager a question and you've got a response that you've thought this is um interesting um if you have anything like that i'd be i'd be fascinated yeah i mean it's a, yeah a good question which i haven't really thought much about before i mean one of the things that we do do is and the work that these you know ethical frameworks for individual sectors, they do. Well, what are the most material, environmental, social, animal impacts of a given sector? So to that extent, yeah, what we're talking with a building 
a property company about is going to be different from a retailer is going to be For different sure. from a um, an, an energy an energy company. Um, I, I guess, um, yeah. I mean, in terms of general approach, the key question is, you know, so the the the, the, the most productive way is is saying, hey, there's this challenge we sort of see, you know in your sector or globally, yeah, how are you thinking about that? And then let them talk to you about do they recognise it as an issue and, and if they do, what are, they, what are they doing about it? So, yeah, that's just sort of part of the avoiding sort of the leading questions because sometimes mm. you can, yeah, it's that balancing between a whole lot of tick-the-box type questions which can be efficient because you're saying we, we're really interested in these things but, it, but you're not necessarily getting an unvarnished picture of where the company's at on a particular issue. And in terms of your specific question, what's the, the general question? I mean, the, the thing you want to know is, um, you know, is, I don't necessarily think the word's the best word, but, yeah, is this a company of integrity? You know, does it, mm. does it have a clear understanding of what it's trying to achieve, you know, its purpose, its, its values, you know, how it is going to achieve its business objectives? Um, uh, and does, is that sort of understanding itself shared throughout the organisation? Are they transparent about, you know, the things they're doing which are helping achieve that purpose where they've actually got more work, work to do? So, you know, do they have a culture, that open, transparent culture internally, but also then externally in their dealing with stakeholders like our shareholders? I mean, I, I think if, if you're looking for an area which crosses sectors, uh, you know, that, that culture governance uh, type area of inquiry uh, is is sort of the one which is shared. At the same time, it's, I, I, I think, probably the most difficult one to gauge from outside an organisation, but in a big organisation, mm. it's equally hard for directors and executives to get a handle on their own culture a lot of the time. Mm, it is indeed. And I, I find the questions that we ask um, as analysts to be quite fascinating because um, there are distinct ways that analysts or portfolio managers interview prospective investments. Um, and some people prefer to lead them down the garden path, so to speak. And some people prefer to open-ended questions. Some prefer closed-ended. Um, some prefer the gotcha questions. Mm -hmm. And it's it's always interesting to hear that. And then from the ethical perspective to just really ask, step back and ask yourself, does this company have integrity? I think um, is a really interesting way to frame it. I might just um, ask for another question, ask another question, which maybe is a bit close-ended of me, which is just that um, over your time with Australian Ethical, if you could think of one company, say, that the first one that comes to mind that you think has been most polarizing um, amongst the, the, the clients or the members that you have, which company would that be and why? Like, which one comes to mind first of all? Well, listen, I'm, I'm torn um, and, I, you know, it probably does change over time, but I guess ones which, which have come up consistently are, well, Facebook now, now Meta. Um, mm -hmm. So we do, we do invest in that, in that company. We do invest in social digital media. Um, mm -hmm. But then also we, we invest selectively in the big banks. So our investment in, in Westpac uh, is, is always um, one which which is encourages some debate. So I'm happy mm -hmm. to talk about either or both of, of those. Well, I'm not oh, really sure. happy to, but <laughs> I certainly I'm used to talking about them. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's your role, isn't it? To to kind of um I guess moderate that debate as well because mm -hmm. you've got to see it from both perspectives. So mm -hmm. maybe if you just want to take them one at a time, even um, mm -hmm. it's just just as much as you want to give us. I guess that's really fascinating because those two examples everyone can cling to and 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 get a sense of where and how you make that decision. 
Yeah, okay. Um, so, well, let's start with Westpac and, you know, big banks generally. You know, it is an Australian sport, I think, to bash the big banks and for lots of good good reasons. Mm. Uh, so, you know, why, why do we invest in, in them at all? Well, we invest in the banking sector because we think, you know, responsible finance, you know, access to basic basic banking services, you know, hugely positive to facilitate individuals and, and businesses in, mm. in pursuing what they want to pursue. So it sort of it's, it's facilitates uh, others to pursue positive, positive projects. Um, uh, in the context of climate, um, hugely important that capital that, that banks, large banks particularly control, uh, is, is channeled um, towards renewables, energy efficiency, green buildings, green transport. So, you know, we, we're talking, you know, $5 trillion a year, I think, was the IEA number to get us to net zero by, by 2050, looking at $5 trillion a year out to 2030. Yeah. So banks have a crucial role to play in that. So um, responsible finance is important. Then the, the challenge is determining what's responsible, what's not. And on the climate front, you know, we, we're in the midst of a, a massive debate in Australia about, um, I think the, the debate is, is moved on from thermal coal. I think there is acceptance finally that, hey, this, this is not a growth, this can't mm. be a growth mm. area for, for, for Australia. The debate's now shifted to oil and gas. Um, I mentioned the IEA, the International Energy Agency, they've been very clear about we, we, we shouldn't, we can't keep expanding that sector those sectors if we're going to uh, have a chance of getting to net zero by 2050 and we're in an environment where, you know, there's lots of new oil and gas projects on the, on the drawing board in, in Australia. So, um, you know, that's where we're engaging heavily with, um, with banks um, and, you know, asking them questions not only in private but also at their annual general meetings. We're at the, the Westpac and NAB general meetings uh, in December supporting the shareholder resolutions there and asking questions about culture Mm. Um, asking questions about about climate, um, so yeah, we, we certainly I don't I don't want to sound like a defender of the banks, but I mean historically we have felt that Westpac uh, uh, domestically and indeed in some regards globally has been a leader in having really clear criteria around its climate lending. Um, you know our expectations of that have grown, so we're still wanting them to do to do more. Uh, but that's been one of the reasons why why we've liked them. They've actually um, uh, approached um, their climate criteria uh, in a in a detailed in a, a science based way. Uh, culture far tougher. Um, you know we we did think that they they were doing okay on that front, but recent years recent events have really mm -hmm. um, uh, well. Listen, maybe that's why I said it's um, assessing culture is the hardest because we obviously mm -hmm. got that wrong uh, because they've continued. I mean, all the banks have the issues; they recognise yeah, them, and, and it, it's a challenge to fix them. But but Westpac has um, uh, has had more than its fair share in recent times. Um, mm -hmm. So that's that's banking. Uh, and listen, I should say, people say, "Well, why don't you just invest in small banks?" Um, so just to, to say, well, mm -hmm. we do, uh, but I, I guess a couple of limitations of that: one, they don't score um, any better on metrics like complaints to the financial complaints authority. Mm. So they have exactly the same customer issues, mis-selling issues that the big banks have. And indeed, you know, typically will score worse than the big banks. Uh, and then on the climate front, yeah, they don't lend to fossil fuels, but equally they're not, they're not lending to large-scale infrastructure. So they're just not in that business. So it's sort of mm. de facto, they're not in that in that sector. Um, shall I bump onto social yeah, media? 
that's fascinating about Westpac. And I know it's yeah. one that has brought up a lot of debate um, amongst um, the Australian ethical uh, broader community, as well as commentators. Uh, yeah. And I, I guess as we record this, it's very timely to talk about Facebook, uh, AKA meta, mm-hmm. um, not just for recent events, but also for legacy events, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, going back quite a few years. So I'm fascinated to, to hear what you have to say about this. Yeah. So listen, and it, it's been a focus here, I think, we invested maybe four or five years ago uh, at, a, at a time, you know, I think that was around the time, maybe a little bit before um, Cambridge Analytica, but, you know, it's it's been uh, a consistent stream of, of issues and concerns, harm to users, particularly younger users, uh, the spread of disinformation, its, its effect on the quality of our democracies. Mm-hmm. Um, hugely complex for us to judge these platforms, we find. Um, uh, I mean, one thing to say is, uh, you know, they are pervasive. They're sort of like the banking system and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they're part of the plumbing, so much a part of the way that we, you know, live our lives, um, you know, we run businesses, that it's sometimes you know, we do overlook um, uh, the benefits that they bring and, and, and just focus on the downsides. Um, and, and, you know, they, we think there are wide-ranging benefits that social media and other digital information sharing platforms deliver, you know, whilst... We see them being used to mislead people. You know, they're, they're used to reveal truth uh, uh, as well, to hold powerful individuals, businesses, governments to account. And lots of, of great examples of, of that where people have been exposed, uh, yeah, for the great harm that they've, they've caused to their employees or customers and, 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 and so on. Um, you know, and they, they do give us access to information in a way that, you know, I, I could only dream of when I was at school and, and, and university. Uh, they help people stay connected. So, um, you know, during pandemics, for example, you know, uh, obviously have a hugely positive role. Um, uh, but they can be misused. They are misused. They're used to spread disinformation. They can make people feel more isolated. Um, uh, mm. we, we know that particularly for, for young people. Um, so it's a question how we use them, how we regulate them. And, and currently where we sit, um, on balance, we think there's a positive role for social media in our society, in our economy, um, uh, but we need to see better regulation and we're seeing some progress on that. And we need to see um, more proactive measures from the companies um, to, uh, to promote the positive uses, limit the negative uses. But I, I think to recognise that those fixes are not simple. There's some great minds, you know, including locally in the ACCC, working on some of these issues and we're seeing progress. Um, uh, but, uh, but I guess, yeah, new technologies, uh, it will take us a, a little while, unfortunately, to, to work out how to, to use them to maximise their, mm. uh, their benefits. Can I ask, how do members of Australian Ethical, how do they voice concerns with you? Do they, is there an open like, medium for them to communicate? Is it through social media? How do they get in contact with you? Yeah, so we're active on on social media. So absolutely, social media messaging is is one conduit. Uh, email, call centre, um, the occasional letter. Um, but <laughs> yep. but but yes, uh, through um, through those sorts of mechanisms. I mean, superannuation. Uh, these days, we have annual member member meetings. So that um, the the uh, our last year member meeting and. October, November, I think it was, was a great platform for lots of discussion about banks, social media, food, energy. Yeah, I imagine you get to handle all the good questions. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and yeah, and luckily um, the team, yeah, I'm blessed with, uh, we're, we're blessed with, yeah, a really um, strong ethics research team who are specialists in in lots of areas that I'm not. So, 
So I know mm. we we're, we all um, jump in and, and field those questions and, and we're responding, but we're also listening and learning. Um, you know, that interaction, uh, you know, really does inform our process. Ultimately, we make, you know, it's our responsibility, our expertise and experience we need to bring to bear. But these are such complex issues. Um, yeah, the, the, the input we get from our customer base and others is huge. Mm, for sure. Stuart, I've got one final question, which is kind of like a five-parter because there's five example companies here that I hope illustrate mm-hmm. the Australian ethical kind of process. Um, and they're all, um, well, basically, they're all Australian companies. Um, and these are taken from the Australian Ethical 2021 Sustainability Report. So if anyone's listening to this and they're thinking, you know, I'd like some more context on this, I'd like to understand Australian ethical a bit better um, from a sustainability perspective and look at that charter and how it plays out, uh, I'll put links in the show notes. And of course, if you are listening to this on your on your podcast uh, player, you can just jump down into your phone and have a look and click the link there to go to the Australian Ethical uh, landing page for this. Um, so I thought I'd just maybe go through these five companies and just as briefly as you like, tell us um, why or why not they they made it through the kind of into the universe. Um, so the, the first one is, uh, I believe it's a, still a private company, which is um, Guzman Y Gomez, which is GYG, as it's, as it's known, it's a Mexican fast food. I know there's one just up the road here from me in Melbourne. Um, why, why not did that make it through through the filter? Yeah, so we, we looked at them when they were um, considering listing on the on the ASX uh, and that, that didn't proceed, although I think there's talk about it maybe coming, mm. coming back. Uh, so their menu relies heavily on ingredients which don't meet our food sector criteria uh, oh, right. is, is, I guess, the short answer. So, um, yeah, when we're looking at food, we pay a lot of attention to the climate impacts, health impacts, animal welfare impacts of animal-based protein. So by and large, it's um, got a much higher emissions footprint and indeed other environmental footprint. Uh, than say plant-based nutrition and, and protein. So our focus is on that that those plant-based alternatives um, uh, because of their their lower carbon and environmental and, and animal animal footprint. And that's an example where yeah, there's some there's some vegetarian options on the on the Guzman menu. Very tasty um, food across their menu. I I have mm-hmm. to say, um, uh, but yeah, it's again an area where we look at the mix. We look at yeah. Revenue breakdowns, have, have, you know, um, estimate um, the the breakdown there, and they didn't, uh, uh, mm. yeah, uh, they didn't make it. That's that's fair enough. Okay, so the national storage REIT um, trades mm-hmm. on the ASX under the ticker code NSR, which mm-hmm. is self storage um, real estate investment trust. This is a really interesting one because we think, I guess, this is sustainable sustainable buildings. We're going to go with this, but um, you wouldn't think that a REIT um, is quite a polarizing one. But maybe I'll throw it over to you for the national storage REIT. Yeah, and there's, uh, you know, property, sustainable buildings, land use um, is a positive under under the Charter. So the question is, what what do we consider to be sustainable? So we are looking for, you know, good environmental credentials and and transparency. So, you know, have you got neighbours ratings or other equivalent environmental sustainability ratings for your buildings? And, you know, there's there's lots of managers, uh, particularly in, in areas like commercial office property, uh, who are doing some amazing things around the, you know, operational emissions of their buildings, you know, carbon neutral buildings being being built today from an operational point of view, and also looking at that the built emissions. So, yeah, how, lowering um, the intensity of the, the building materials they're using, and including, you know, 
sustainable timber, for example, in, in some smaller scale commercial buildings. But yeah, interesting that storage, the storage part of that property sector, there's not the same level of, um, of transparency and, and measurement. Interesting. Uh, we, you know, we, we um, engaged with um, NSR, National Storage REIT, and they were receptive to that. It was good. And, and um, you know, I, I think, you know, we saw and we'll expect to continue to see improvements in, in the approach they're, they're taking. Um, so maybe we, we can look at them again. But at that time, yeah, we couldn't be satisfied that they, you know, were sort of in that, meeting that that environmental hurdle just because we there wasn't enough information and we and we in that in that particular uh case when we're looking at property sort of the burden of proof if you like lies with the REIT to tell us for sure you know, what you're doing on this for sure um this one this third one's interesting for me um i believe i own shares in this company so it's tyro payments which is mm-hmm. the card um, it does the payment terminals, which you'll see around Australia. Sometimes they're grey, and you can tap your card and go, and and what have you. Um, typically found at like cafes and in medical practices. Um, did Tyro Payments pass the the filter? If not, why not? Um, I'd be I'd be fascinated to know. Yeah, no, it it, it certainly did. I mean, it just you know, technologies which you know contribute to the efficiency with which individuals' businesses can pursue mm-hmm. their objectives. You know, will generally get through if they're managing their footprint reasonably that you know they're not focused on on negative sectors so uh you know that that payments functionality you know we view as positive uh listen i don't think it was a necessary part of of the of getting of them getting in but the fact they're an alternative to you know the banks um i I think you know as a general rule competition um is is we would view as a good thing under the Mm. charter so yeah, so they, they got in there as a facilitator of financial transactions. Hmm. Oh, good to know. Uh, number four is um, another company which many of our listeners will be familiar with, which is ARB Corp. Uh, trades on the, the ticker symbol ARB. It's on the ASX. Um, family-run company, uh, does four-by-four accessories. Um, so off-road, um, many of the, the people that listen to this um, would be familiar with seeing that logo around. Um, did, did ARB Corp make it through? Uh, so they didn't, and yeah, don't have anything um, in particular against uh, four-wheel drives. Um, uh, beyond the general point that, like the rest of the transport sector, they do need to transition to net net zero. So, mm. you know, when we're looking at how do we invest positively in that sector, we're focusing on public transport. We're focusing on electric vehicles, um, and and their motor vehicle accessory technology companies that we do invest in where they we see them making a significant contribution to um, to the growth of the EV sector for example and we just we just couldn't see that with with ARB you know that that focus on accessories for high footprint um, you know petrol diesel four-wheel drives didn't we just didn't find that that positive under under our ethical charter and under our transport framework mm, fascinating okay last one which um is not the internet connection I'm coming through to you with today, but if I was at home, I would be, which is the company uh, known as uh, Aussie Broadband Trades on the ASX under the ticker symbol ABB. And this provides low cost um, MBN connections and it's with, I can vouch for it, pretty good customer service. So um, this is a company that's only new to the ASX, but I'm wondering if Aussie Broadband made it through. Uh, So yes, it, it did. And um, yeah, interesting you mentioned customer service because I'll, I'll come back to, to that. Um, uh, so yeah, again, the sort of company that's part of the plumbing, um, you know, communication services, helping us 
pursue our day-to-day as individuals, as, as, as businesses more efficiently, more safely, often um, access to, to mobile information uh, we think is, is, is positive. Uh, yeah, when we're looking at companies in that sector, often, you know, we are faced with high levels of consumer satisfaction and, and complaints. Mm. Uh, so, you know, uh, we, 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 we take that in, into account. We're not sort of ruling out lots of companies on that basis. Unfortunately, it does seem to be a, 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 an industry challenge generally. And, and um, yeah, great to hear. I must say that um, Aussie Broadband has good, good customer service. Yeah, it does. I've, um, I think I've referred maybe four or five of my friends who have then gone and referred a few of their friends. So um, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a fantastic business when you can call them and uh, they'll answer and you hear that, a, a familiar voice and it's, yeah, it's just really good customer service. So that just blew me away. Um, so Dr. Stuart Palmer, I really want to say thank you for taking the time to join me on the show today. I know there are a lot of resources available to people on the Australian Ethical website. So if you want to learn more, uh, if you want to get access to that transparency that Stuart was talking about with regards to seeing you know, what's in the portfolio, Australian Ethical are also uh, have launched a high conviction fund um, in an ETF wrapper. So then you can invest on exchange. Um, there'll be full details of that in the show notes and you can head to the landing page that's available in your podcast player. Um, just to recap, we've covered a lot about uh, a lot of your history, how the, the pillars of um, the Australian ethical process, Australian ethical investment process are kind of like twofold. There's the the pillar for um, the ethics research, and then there's the one for the traditional investment research and how they marry together is really interesting and they create a universe. I think one of the things that was really interesting to me is basically you're saying that you can refine that universe uh, in Australia, at least by up to half, um, which is fascinating. And then we went through some examples, Facebook uh, being one of the most polarizing companies that you've come across alongside Westpac. Um, So Stuart, I just want to say thanks again for for joining me on the Australian Investors Podcast and um, all the best um, with uh, more of those polarizing debates and, and the next um, member meeting that you have, I'm, I'm sure um, there'll be more good questions for you then. So thanks again for joining me. Rowan, oh, thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.